Hey up and welcome to the Temple of Bleh. This one is very self-explanatory. It's Matt Carp, who is the author of New Metal, A Definitive Guide, and various other curious tomes on the topic of New Metal, and Temple of Bleh alumni Joel McIver, who is the author of various uh, books on heavy metal and rock and roll and whatnot. But in 2002, he came out with a book called New Metal, The Next Generation of Rock and Punk. So it's a good mishmash of perspectives of the time, what with Joel having written this 20 years ago and Matt having written his piece just a few years ago. Anyway, let's jump straight into it. One, two, fuck shit up. pitch lads thanks very much for making the time i i as as you guys all know my, my focus journalistically and, and and from an academic standpoint is on a very like specific part of the music history with the roadrunner stuff um and it kind of occurred to me that new metal as a as a genre as a movement as a period i was like i kind of missed it because in this period i was a maiden kid i was just listening to iron maiden and things like that and i didn't really get into slipknot till volume three so i'm just kind of like i've completely missed the boat so when i became aware that there's only two kind of published authors in the space it felt like this is an opportunity for an education so in true bob nalbandian style rest in peace i just thought i'd throw you two together and we could just have like a a bit of a retrospective on it if that sounds cool to you yeah there is actually another published book on new metal by a guy called tommy udo who died a couple of years ago really um yeah it came out by the same time as mine and um he was a real sweetheart but we can get into that he was old school journalist from the previous generation to me who died in his 50s but uh there is a, right. there was another book right well let's start there then joel so what this is 2001 this is pre um just pre glenn hughes and metallica and things like that this so where like are you another in era i mean yeah, it's 22 yeah, yeah. years ago i'm 52 now and i was 30 then i'm you know i had babies and now i've got adults running around you know what i mean it's a completely different life stage um, well, I'll, I'll be brief because I could talk all day about this and bore you, but yeah. I came to New Metal in a really strange way, right? Because I was already sort of 29, 30 <clears throat> when that stuff was peaking. Mm. So I was the editor, I'm sorry, I was the production editor on a magazine called Record Collector. Right? You, you probably know it. Super cool vinyl mag. I was on the staff for a few years. Um, and on that mag, uh, I was kind of the metal guy, right? So I, not the only one, but one of two writing about stuff that i liked which was like you it was it was maiden and it was motorhead and slayer and metallica right they were my big things and but we kept getting sent these albums for review and offered interviews with artists like slipknot and no one else really knew what the hell was going on oh is it it's just metal is it like maiden it must be like motorhead because everyone else who wasn't into metal didn't have that frame of reference right mm -hmm. so i said i'll do it and so i started writing about this stuff right i remember writing a massive uh slipknot piece interviewed joey um did a big old limp biscuit article uh i i wrote about corn um i wrote about cold chamber and and all the way on down right for that magazine and then freelanced a bit of stuff out to metal hammer and stuff and then so suddenly at the age of 30 i was the new metal guy right and uh, but i hadn't really been listening to it to corn in 1994 for example right so i only really got to it in about 99 2000 2001 when it was peaking mm -hmm. um so I can't say that I was a 16 year old and Limp Bizkit meant everything to me or, you know, Slipknot were huge when I was 14 or something, um, which you could say, for example, about my son, right? Who went through a major Slipknot uh, phase in his mid teens and grew out of it, you know, 
Um, so my so what I'm trying to say, the short answer to your question is that my route into new metal was a little bit unusual, I suppose, because it was a okay. kind of a professional thing. And I was already way past the young years when when yeah. that stuff means a lot to you, which I imagine is a bit different to your story, Matt. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you said obviously 16 and Limp Bizkit mean everything. I was 14 and Limp Bizkit did mean everything. Uh, yeah. yeah. I literally grew up in that was the first heavy music I encountered was. I think it was 2000. Yeah, I had a friend. He lent me the first Slipknot album and Corns Follow the Leader. And basically, I was all the way through school that day. I was trying to work out which album I'm going to listen to first. And I think the Nine Headed Monster of Slipknot was a little bit too scary for someone who, uh, up until that point, had probably listened to Manic Street Preachers and Guns N' Roses. Um, that was about as rocky as I got. So I went with Corn <clears throat> um, from within the 30, first 30 seconds of the, the first track there. I was hooked on them, um, just the groove and obviously the completely different sound that, that I'd ever heard before. So, uh, yes, they were, obviously then I did listen to Slipknot after that. And um, being in the UK, I mean, I didn't have a computer at the time, so I had to rely on the Kerrang! magazine to come out weekly, um, which at the time, of course, was all on new Metal. So, yes, I was a, a new Metal kid from, the, from my very younger years. So what? Just going back to Joel, what was the call to action to write the uh, mm. the, the the tome, um, mm. new metal, the next generation of rock and punk? Was that was that a professional well, I, engagement or just a curiosity? Uh, let me think. Uh, that was my um, either my second or my third book, right? So I, I had done a book in two thousand called Extreme Metal, which was my first first book. So that was all the really grisly death metal and black metal and thrash metal stuff that I was into. And that book did well. And then the publishers said, well, what else you got? You know what I mean? And uh, so the next thing, yeah, the next book was a book about Slipknot. So, you know, Slipknot had barely got started, really, when I wrote that book in 2001. Um, they had a couple of albums out, didn't they? And yeah, they literally had two albums out and the demo one. Um, so I did that. And then the same publisher said, well, come on, let's keep rolling. These books are doing well. And that was my aim. You know what I mean? I wanted to be an author. I was a journalist full time. But my my goal was to be a sort of independent author. And, work in an office like this as i have actually done for the last 18 years uh so that was it. i said well let's do a book on new metal then it's the same format as extreme metal a to z let's get all the bands in it'll be a bit of a laugh it'll look like a graphic novel mm. um and that's how that came about yeah it was a professional engagement it is good it kind of reminds me of like the dk encyclopedias you had when, when you were a kid except without like the um the cross-section pictures of like a ship or something yeah, like that. With exploded stuff. Yeah, see, I don't think it is a very good book. That's, that's kind of you to say that, but it's not terrible, but it was at the very start of my career, right? And I was fairly new as a writer. And I think I yeah. felt I needed to make jokes because I was a bit embarrassed about liking some of the bands, which is tragic. You know, you should always just own own what you like and own what you are. But of course, I was younger and I didn't know what the hell I was doing. So some of it is a bit crap, actually, but none of it is terrible. I don't, I don't look back on it and cringe like some people do, you know? I think I think it's for me for someone who was like I wasn't really there for it. I understand there's like that you you've only got like a hot and cold sensor where you're like oh Limp Bizkit there's some controversy uh, Linkin Park fairly clean Corn there's something else going on there there's a different kind of angst there but this is quite oh this puts it into words it kind of vocalizes what was going on but also at the same time it was in the middle of it and you were quite um, there's some passages which are like oh yeah Joel knows this is a fated a fated thing. And you, it's quite clear that there's there's a there's cycles and you know all the all yeah. these things. Yeah, it's, it, it's it was doomed, really, wasn't it? The book, I think that book came out in two thousand and three, and that was two new metal was pretty much was it O two? Didn't have long left, did it? You know, and we'll get into whether it's come back in any meaningful way, but it, that first wave yeah. was 
kind of on its way out, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So similarly, in kind, new metal defensive guide, Matt. So what was the call to action? Because your your bibliography it does focus around this sort of part of the world, doesn't it? For the most part, I know you got some fiction in there as well, haven't you? Um, at the start, I was um, yeah. I've, again, I've, I've wanted to be a, a writer for for many years, and I think I did a self little crappy. Like Joel said, sometimes your your earlier books can you look back on them and think yeah. Uh, so I did. I had done a self-published book, um, and when it came to new metal, um, I belatedly came in possession of Joel's book, um, probably around 2015, I imagine. Um, Bloody hell. Something like that, yeah. Um, so I was reading through it, and you know, 2002 it came out. Um, I was reading through some of the biographies, and obviously there's there's bands there where had perhaps only released one album at the time, and and Joel, you know, sort of tipped some of them for going on for greatness. Um, some unforeseen uh, split up after that, and perhaps never was to be seen again. So by sort of 2015-16, um, obviously I'd lived through most of that new metal era, and I could feel like there was some bands that were kind of coming back, or that the whole movement was coming back in, in a sense. There's still a dedicated fan base, like a cult following at most for new metal. Um, so um, again, at the time, self-published, I decided to, to do a, a book encapsulating the whole movement from the beginning up until the then present day um, a lot of new bands coming through with sort of the same new metal aesthetics in their sounds um, and yeah so I did a couple of versions of that myself and then I was fortunate to get a publisher on board in 2020 I think it was now Sonic mm -hmm. Bond um, I just I approached them and I said I'm considering doing a, a final like a trilogy of books I guess a final version um, would it be something you'd be interested in taking on? At the time, they only had a couple of their own dedicated series, um, and they did suggest that perhaps two or three times a year they may take on a book so completely different to what they've done before. And uh, luckily, yes, they took on this one, which became a definitive guide. Um, in For the first couple of books, I was able to get interviews with members of some of the bands from back in the day, and I was able to go back and get a few more, speak to some of the guys I spoke to before for like an updated chat for the content. Um, and yeah, that's how it came to be. Um, obviously, there's, there's a lot more text than there is images in there. There's a nice picture section in the middle of the book. That's, yeah, yeah. that's just the publisher's format. Um, I do like the idea of a book where you've got images sort of throughout, obviously, certain bands and whatnot. Um, but yeah, that's how it came out. Um, and yeah, it was it was nice to see it come together in, and obviously a lot more professional looking than what I was able to to do um, self-publishing wise. Do you feel that... it? Because essentially, sorry to butt in, we, we both did books that are like a generation apart about the mm. same subject. Yeah. You know, literally, what is that? 18, 17 years between them, I guess. And uh, I haven't read your book, but I want to because I want to know how your perspective differs from mine, you know, being stuck in the middle of it and then being mm. so long past the first wave of it at least yeah yeah I was, obviously because of the time frame i was able to just i mean I, there is a an a to z biography of the bands which is able to go up to the then present day so a lot of the a lot of the biographies are still correct but there are still a handful of bands and actually probably a few more sort of coming out again now that are back releasing new music um as well and and there was a few sort of features in there i did as well and and stuff like that but yeah it's it's funny how we are kind of talking about new metal still in in 2023 when nothing the, new about it for the for the big part it has been um often maligned by the heavy metal community there's there's obviously it's been a very niche oh, market, but, but it is still flourishing 
um, especially after the the Sick New World concert in America um, a few weeks yeah, ago. Hell of, yeah. a Hell of a line. You guys know I'm doing um, Des Fafara's autobiography at the moment. Do you guys know mm-hmm. that? Yes. I was going to come in with, I was going to channel Mick Wall and just go, you've got a personal come professional relationship with Nez, haven't you? And then he could have done, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I see. Yeah, I could have gone on about, I was a good mate of mine. Yeah, Yeah, like I did with Glenn Hughes. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. So uh, this was just announced last month and Des has been doing press for it. It's not out till later this year. But the the reason I mentioned that and drop it in is because of Seek New World, right? Which I think is the most amazing event. Like someone had some serious courage to put that on. Um, I mean, it was a massive event. The list of bands was huge. Mm. And, you know, and you had Cold Chamber, which was a big band back in the day, and they were like in the fourth line, you know what I mean? It was like, it was it was massive. And apparently it was really good. Des said it was incredible. Um, so, sorry, I, I kind of deflected your flow a little bit there, but the, what, I, what, the re, what I was going to go on to say was that who would have thought all these years later that these bands would still not only be alive and well and together, but actually doing good business at events like this? Um, and there's some small bands on there as well that are still going. It's not like it's just the big three, which I know is something you want to talk about. Um, I was amazed when I saw that festival was coming out. Mm-hmm. That is going to kickstart so many reformations. Mm-hmm. Basically, Cold, Cold Chamber, we're going to do stuff anyway. Um, and they have more stuff lined up. But this definitely sort of accelerated that process. Um, be interesting to see which bands we don't want to reform. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to give you sort of like my pitch, because again, this is like, I wasn't really there. My my The lens I looked at this through or lived through was Napster era, trying to download Metallica videos, and they were all Woodstock 99 and came bundled with the other footage. And you had an idea of what kind of the visibility was. So when I think of like new metal, I think of usually like a summer festival aesthetic. But when you think about it, and as as and this is what I think is happening now that the oversaturation of media and the pandemic sort of, creating a, a podcast heavy and dialogue heavy environment around this stuff i think like our language has matured a bit and we're starting to look back on these things differently and i don't think and I, it'd be remiss of us to have this conversation without talking about what is new metal but at the same time it's pointless because it feels more of a movement than it was a genre it feels it was like well this is alternative popular music using non-traditional you know instrumentation what certainly wasn't pop it's kind of like in the same way grunge happened in the 90s, in the early 90s, new metal happened later on. It was more of an investment profile and a music at the same and certain kinds of music at the same time. There's a very certain kind of production value in the videos. There's big mm. sort of like big industry events built around them, like Ozfest. It's I think it was it's difficult because now we call it new metal and we have these things associated with new metal. But I think it's much grander than that. I think it's much more, it's more of a What's the word I'm looking for, authors? Well, uh, I, I would say it was it was when metal expanded to include a whole load of other people who had previously not been welcome, i.e. women, right? Mm. Um, and it, it became okay, as just as Grunge had done for Hard Rock, to talk about, you know, emotional matters. And you had, it was just a broader, a kind of a maturation, I think, yeah. of, of metal, you know. Um, in fact, you could liken new metal and previous metal to grunge and hair metal a bit, can you? Similar sort of thing okay. happened. It grew up, got a bit more serious, and then it got taken over by the industry, as I think you basically hinted before. Yeah, I think I think it's it is those things. It's the maturation of the genre, but it feels like these there's these pockets of pockets of years where okay, Nirvana happens, then everyone's trying to sign the next Nirvana, and they go, "Oh, that's not going to work." 
but there's this band called Corn that seen and Deftones seem to be doing really well. Okay, let's all get around that. And then a few years later, we go, okay, there's a band called My Chemical Romance. All right, everyone fuck off from that now. We're going to go and do this thing. And it kind of feels exactly. like our perception of it now, I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a resurgence personally. Again, this is where you guys can correct me because I'm an idiot and I'm just sort of taking my limited lens. And um, I don't think it's a resurgence. I think it's a prequelization. Like the Star Wars prequels, just for some reason, everyone loves them now. And we've kind of forgiven it. We've kind of just gone, well, it was a period in time. It was a different kind of thing. This is just where the market was. That's what's happening because we're not going to see a $3 bill, your level investment in a particular artist that's going to sound the same as that stuff. While there are cycles and we're going to see a lot of bands like that, we're not going to see multi-platinum selling, you know, turntables and big grooves and things like that. It's a completely different era. I feel it's just, we're just having a bit more of a mature look at what happened then and kind of, taking it for what it is which is great for the market because it means we can get dry kill logic back on tour and it oh makes it God. more viable i don't think that they keep teasing more music but they are still together but what's the perception of that because i think as a as, as someone who lived through it i think you're probably best place to tell me if it is a resurgence or am i right in sort of saying it's we're just looking at it through a different lens and allowing more things in yeah, I think this the second of those. Um, like you said, you, you're not going to get the uh, the gold and platinum selling records anymore. I mean, obviously, uh, I, I think uh, a big part of new metal's downfall in sort of 2003, 2004 was from illegal downloading. That it was just a wave that just, just killed the industry back then. Um, I mean, today in terms, I mean that sick note, sick new world um, lineup. Obviously, I'm familiar with most of those bands um a lot of them now perhaps only have one original member in their lineup so it is kind of like a you know just a, a quick trek around sort of relive the glory days a lot of people want to go and hear perhaps those just those one or two songs that were huge on the radio back in the day um Limp Bizkit I mean they're the band that obviously they've always had a, a love-hate or people have had a love-hate relationship with them but they just since sort of Fred Durst came back dressed in the old man's wig and the granddad trousers and all that it, something seems to have clicked with them in terms of sending them yeah. back. Obviously, obviously, the media, you can, whether you, if you don't like them, you can blame the media for it, but they just seem to have elevated themselves again. And they released that brief Still Sucks album oh, a couple of years ago now, I think, mm. and we'll get new music from them. Um, so that sort of level band that was big back in the day, I think they'll always have um, their time in the spotlight. They'll, their music will be graciously received by the fan base but for the for the rest of them yeah i think it is just let's just you know keep touring if we can um perhaps release the odd song a lot of bands are doing it independently these days as well or very small labels have sort of taken them on um so yeah resurgence yeah probably not so much because like you said that would include big big record sales and and, and stadium tours and arena tours where of um in the likelihood especially in america a lot of these bands tend to play smaller venues or even these these sort of bar and grill venues that perhaps have a, a small stage in the background but it's just reliving the heyday and a lot of the fans are obviously loving it every vince neil video you see reported on bottom mouth is always at the something bar and grill <laughs> yeah <laughs> right and the other thing is you won't see fred durst on the front cover of usa today or one of those giant magazines or you know even if those magazines exist and you won't see him on MTV because he's going out with Christina Aguilera, you know, you know, that kind of mainstream penetration of the culture. That's no longer there. Um, mm. You know, members of Slipknot have died, haven't they? And there hasn't really been that much coverage outside the metal press. Um, whereas in 2001, that would have been global news, headline news. 
Um, so that's another way of measuring a band's prominence, you know, or sort of standing. How much are the media interested? And frankly, the media are not mm, yeah. outside the obvious magazines that we know and love. You know? And I think that's, a, I think that's to just wrap that bit up while we talk about resurgence and, and one, I think what people are just realizing is this was the last great era of a conventionally popular alternative music. Cause it just once, and as Matt, you pointed out, once downloads came in, that's when the oversaturation started and yeah. you couldn't rally everyone around one thing or the media just doesn't have the means to rally everyone around one thing anymore. I don't think. Does that sound about right? The yeah. last, the last great alternative. Yeah, um, it, yeah it, thing. it was. Yeah, I mean, obviously the, the record, like the uh, sorry, the industry took a massive hit on the back of the downloads as well. And mm. um, off the top of my head, it was probably only what five or six years before the first streaming services came in. Um, I'm not sure. Right about. Um, so yeah, obviously everything sales, came, wasn't it? The, sorry, mate. The the, the peak of um cd sales i think mm. it was like 2001 or 2002 well that's when that, the yeah. number of billions of that generated then you had illegal downloads for five years then you had itunes so you had legal downloads and then you had the streaming services five years later and that was it it was over yeah. you know so yeah. it's, obviously, it's easier for bands to get the music out there these days and like i said some of the the new metal bands that are putting songs out perhaps uh, they're able to do it without sort of physically releasing them as well um but yeah, that yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I lived that era, and yeah, I would say that was the last, the last great era. The comparison in between metal, the... right? Because don't forget, you've got all this other music in hip hop and going on elsewhere. Yeah. that we're not talking about, you know. Yeah. Mm. yeah, I mean, in terms of like the metrics of what becomes popular and what becomes sort of in vogue, it's a completely separate conversation. And you know, the the, the sphere of revenue and marketability and and branding and how that works. Obviously, the big conversation now is about the money generated from touring and the merch fees and things like that and that's like people have forgotten that there was an entire system on the record side which has just completely died out but that's a different that's a different pursuit i think but let's let's move on to like onto the like the, the history of the genre itself so in terms of milestone moments i think there's in both your books you kind of cite chili peppers faith no more there's a lot of different things going on which have led to this this beast and i think it culminates in corn's debut but I wonder if, if you had, like, in your head, in the timeline of New Metal, what's, like, the big sort of moment that triggers everything off? In the same way, like, Chuck Berry is for metal, right? The lobby will, like, will drag it back to that. Do you guys have, like, a particular milestone that sort of led us down the path that we've gone? I have, if you don't mind me kicking yeah. off. Yeah, you go first, Joe. All right, I was explaining this to my kids the other day. <clears throat> So late 80s, you had Walk This Way and you had Bring the Noise, okay? First sort of rap metal novelty mm -hmm. hits. Then you had Funk Metal, Faith No More, Chili Peppers. Then you had Rap Metal in the first Rage Against the Machine album. Um, and then when Grunge came along, all that meshed into New Metal with Korn's first record. Then you had the first Slipknot. Uh, first Limp Biscuit in what, 97, 98? And the first Seven, Slipknot yeah. in 99, and that is how I see it. So there's a clear sort of 10 to 12 year sort of spectrum of yeah. metal slightly changing. But uh, I remember very clearly those late 80s hits by Anthrax and by Run DMC that kicked it off. So that's how I see it, Matt. You, you make mm. it. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, that is like a, a sort of decent little timeline there. But in terms of, I mean, in terms of if you sort of asking, when new metal kind of became sort of elevated itself 
I mean, I think it was, uh, it was 98 Corn and Limp Biscuit. Uh, Limp Biscuit was 99. They both had number one albums on the Billboard 200. So that seems to be where the mainstream attention really drew, uh, grew. Obviously, Corn's first couple of albums, especially the first one, they were slightly more underground for a little while. They was getting out on tours um, with Ozzy Osbourne. They were getting their name out there. And um, obviously, it was still, for some people, it's still a little bit harder to to embrace what Corn was doing. Um, but yeah, in terms of the mainstream part, it seemed to be follow the leader was what was what you know they did a massive uh, promotional campaign for it from what I remember. Um and Got the Life, I think was the lead single, and that was then spread all over MTV, all over the music channels, and that was where that sort of hybrid of you know the, the funky disco kind of beat with you know grating guitars and JD's vocals, um, Limp Biscuit followed in 99, and then obviously Woodstock hit. For for the for the wrong for the wrong reason. Seen the documentary. There's two. There's the HBO one and then there's a Netflix one, isn't there? Yeah. So I saw the I saw the recent one, whatever the one that's in three parts. It was with Fat Boy Slim. It is pure gold. It was terrible, terrifying, but so good. Such stupidity putting a festival on an aircraft. What is it? A runway made of concrete and nine billion degrees. Yeah, it was uh, crazy. It's still, it's still, well, obviously, just, just looking back at the news stories of all the, everything that went on there, you know, obviously the music was fantastic, the performances were fantastic, but I don't think anybody really remembers that anymore. It's funny, people, I think my kids were saying to me the other day, because we all watched it, was it Fred Durst's fault? Uh, you know, the destruction that happened during break stuff or whatever. And mm. I said, no, I don't think it was, actually. That's, just, you know, if you're in, a, in that kind of band, you kind of whip up the crowd. Uh, it's not like he said, go and kill everybody, each other. He just said, let's go nuts, or worse to that effect. And what else, what else are you going to do? Stand there quietly and ask everyone to calm down, you know? Yeah. Anyway. And you forget <laughs> that Rage was there as well, and Metallica yeah. was there. Metallica. There, was, there was one just, you know, Metallica at that point was like, as much as you want to talk about the watered down era of the 90s, you know, just not mm -hmm. even 10 years prior, there were riots when they were on that Guns N' Roses tour. You know, so it's like, what are you going to do? So could, could we argue that it was like, there was a perfect storm in that sort of like trilogy of years, wasn't there? So you have Ozfest, which I think plays into the Slipknot story in a massive way. Woodstock 99, which had, I don't know if, I don't know if it was all retrospective Woodstock 99 in terms of the cultural implications it had. But it's certainly when I was trying to download Metallica videos and you get everything in that, in it, you get every that's how they did it in the Kazar days. You couldn't download just like one Metallica video, you had to get like a load of different bands in one thing. It was like that Moscow show that Pantera did. You know, you have Metallica, ACDC, and the Pantera bit. So, when I whenever I saw Woodstock 99, it was always the full bill, and it was just felt like, all right, this was clearly a massive moment in time, but I don't know if it felt like that at the time. And I'm sure Matt, you can't comment because you must have been about my age. Oh, uh, for, for what year exactly sorry 99 99 so yeah it's 2000 that I actually first got into to the new metal so yeah even yeah um, it was it was bigger yeah obviously by then i started getting kerrang and i was quickly uh quickly able to see that corn limp biscuit slipknot deftones system of the down they were the they were the big bands coming yeah. through um and then yeah, everyone else just seemed to follow yeah the record labels sort of you know they soon knew that was where the money was going to be they were snapping up anybody and everybody that had some kind of similar sound. It didn't work for a lot of them. Or look. Sometimes it's just about the look. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Actually, Des talks a lot about that in his book because Cold Chamber had that. They were the 
the leaders, weren't they, of looking completely nuts to start mm. with. Um, it's a really interesting story, actually. But um, to me, Woodstock 99 was just yet another massive festival in an era when there were loads of massive festivals. I mean, the right. Ozfest was huge, right? Mm -hmm. So, and Woodstock was big because it had that name attached to it, obviously. But Woodstock 94 hadn't really made that much of an impact outside America. So 99 was just another one, you know what I mean? And Metallica were doing these giant tours everywhere. So everything was on such a large scale in metal. With Maiden as well, doing all that stuff. Um, Woodstock 99 didn't seem uh, as big a deal as it does now. Shot right, got you. Okay. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm trying to make the argument that there was a perfect storm of things that were happening, but I think Matt's probably more accurate in saying, no, people just saw the numbers and started getting around yeah. it. And I can speak about that from a Roadrunner perspective, but... You know, with the bands like Spine Chan, Can, Cold Chamber, and the likes of. In terms of retrospectively, we just, you mentioned a big three, Joel, in yours. Do you think that stands up? Yeah. And where's Linkin Park so, in that? Uh, well, Linkin Park, right, right, okay. They're a difficult one, aren't they? Um, Linkin Park kind of sort of led the second wave i've always sort of felt from 2000 uh, hybrid theory was i think late 2000 2001 seemed to be the the next elevation of of the rap have you, have you got this in, yeah. have you got this in waves then matt in your head yeah it, to me 2001 was like the the second wave that sort of brought right. up approach um i think stained was 2001 um That's and they had a number one album over here yeah, yeah that, that sort of yeah, that was sort of separated. I'm on the outside. Yep. <laughs> we used to come back from the pub. We used to come back from the pub and watch Kerrang TV, like I'm sure you guys did, and it was always on there, wasn't it? Along with yeah. Chop Suey and all those others. It was the live video because you sung it with Fred. That was yeah, the one that was on Kerrang all the time. So yeah. let's break that down. Fred shouts out to the crowd, doesn't he? Because yeah. where are they? They're in New Orleans or saying, Hey, who can you hear me? It's actually quite good. I used to really enjoy that. I haven't watched it for years. I suppose I'll have to now. I saw I got the an email from Fred Durst once. I came back from the pub and there was an email from Fred. <laughs> How about that? Yeah. Well, I, my, I never saw the, that stained video. I saw the Bone for Soup parody of it before I saw the stained video, the one where he's like lighting oh, pictures yeah, yeah. on fire. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, totally. So break down the waves then, for me, Matt, because like, this is structure and I like structure. Oh, right. Okay. <laughs> I'm on the spot. Yes. I mean, yeah. I don't I mind like if it's woolly. A lot of people, um, I mean, I, I, one of my favorite bands still to this day, Deftones, I think they, um, they're just such a consistent band. They're, you know, even changing the style, they just do it effortlessly. They came out with White Pony in 2000, which was probably their most successful record. Um, but yeah, like I say, 2000, you by then you had Korn, um, Slipknot was getting big on the back of their first album, Limp Bizkit was huge. 2001 was when sort of Linkin Park, especially over, maybe it's just my perception from in the UK, because um, I was getting the singles from Woolworths, God rest its soul, I used to love that shop. I was able to get all the singles and it seemed to be upon the, I think in the end was their fourth single from Hybrid Theory. That was the one that obviously it sort of brought in more of a an alternative fan base as well, even pop mm. fans. Um, so 2001, then we had Papa Roach come in there uh stained break the cycle i thinking back now i think it was 2001 they they was helped to be signed by fred durst he brought along um i think they did have an album out before 2001 but it was sort of it went under the radar then they got their big record deal ahead of break the cycle mm -hmm. 
system of a down's toxicity that was 2001 i think and we're still in second wave here and that was the one that sort of put them they released the first album i think in america they was fairly popular but not See, is that is that a new metal band though because that's always bothered me a bit i'm not really sure that they are you know what i mean yeah see i've that's always another gone, debate yeah i mean i've always said that i felt new metal was a movement rather than a genre because i mean mike sarcassian from spine shank when we spoke for for the book he was saying you know at the start all the bands were coming out of los angeles you had spine shank coal chamber incubus system of a down snot they was all playing on the same bill but do any of them sound the same um and then the la metal tag had to kind of be altered because limp biscuit were coming up in florida and slipknot were coming up in iowa um i, I believe from what i've read i think kerrang may have coined the new metal term for the first time um and just, just, you just have an, it used to have an umlaut on the u do you remember yeah yeah and also just think and just thinking with Joel, obviously he's writing the um the Des it's written the Des Fafara book. Um it's also um I, I can't verify it, obviously, but supposedly the first ever band to be labelled new metal was indeed Cold Chamber from a, a live review back in the possibly even ninety five. I don't I'm not sure exactly when without looking in my book when it's possible. Cold it is totally but... possible. Des Des doesn't remember. He's got mixed views about the new metal tag, as mm -hmm. you would imagine yeah i've got i think it was corn and i also think it was an american term first but yeah it's i think it was know, perhaps, it? yeah perhaps it's just quite... a, a local reporter or perhaps someone perhaps yeah, yeah. That term, but it was to coal chamber reportedly anyway i mean people definitely called it new new metal as a mm. term for ages i remember that really clearly new metal and it didn't seem like a cheesy term at all because it was spelt regularly mm. um, yes so some um, uh, uh, I'm trying, <laughs> Yeah, I've definitely got it written oh, down God. somewhere, but I can't find the fuck. It's someone, someone came up with it. But no, and was that... there a third wave as well, Matt? As you sit after system and that, not the third. Yeah, a third wave kind of incorporated a lot of the, the post grunge bands. So I mean, Cold they were about from I think their first album came out in '97, sort of again under the radar. But then you had a lot of band like Trapped, the fantastically named Huberstank who did the uh, the reason I think that was that video was on all the chart charts at the time Glassjaw Glassjaw was around that time yeah I've, I've been listening to a lot of Glassjaw the last few days and I'm still I see them get put in that new metal tag but I mm. I still kind of feel they're more of the, the next next wave of like the metal core sure. right, right. my gear says that Glassjaw was a band without context hmm yeah for some reason i kind of still have a little correlation between them and deftones i'm not sure why even though yeah jaw um i mean I, they haven't released as much music over the years but they've always remained sort of more abrasive and um but i, I do i think i've always sort of held them two together for some reason but yeah wasn't the, it? Post run, the post grunge sort of 2003 mm -hmm. and then i still remember on kerrang then the next video that came on after all these was uh my last serenade by kill switch and then I remember just okay. watching that and thinking, okay, something's changing now. Something's yeah, yeah. coming. My um, favorite thing, my favorite sort of commentary on Hoover there was a video that was floating around years ago. This was like first generation YouTube stuff. There was a guy dressed as a wizard who used to hang out outside of Hoover shows. And he'd go <laughs> there with an A frame and a big like whiteboard on it. And on it, there'd be like five bits of cards that are covering up other words. And um, what you do is you say, right, all of you, come here. Like, I want you to list me the top five Huberstank songs. And then they'll come up, they'll all have like a bit of a comp. This is like a 20 minute video. 
of all the fans just going, all right, I think it's this, blah, 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 blah. and they go through and it, you know, the reason would be at the top, and they go, well done, guys, thanks very much. And this <laughs> just a guy just as a wizard with a microphone, oh, megaphone even, and he just goes, and I'm sorry to inform you all, you're all wrong. And he just take off these cards, and it'd be like number five, not applicable, number four, <laughs> not applicable, and he'd mm. do it all the way to the end, and then right, fuck off, and he just leave. It was the, it was back when trolling. Um, <laughs> it was uh, done in person and uh, sometimes invited violence anyway. It's, it's tough when you only have one big hit, right? Like you mentioned Spineshank before, Matt. I really liked that one song. Is it called... Um... New, uh, New Disease is a big one. I thought that was a great song. Yeah. At the time, it's super catchy. And um, and then they, they couldn't keep it together, could they, really? Not in the long term. That was it. They did, yeah, they did one more album uh, in that little sort of time. Then they split up and then they came back with Anger, Denial, Acceptance. And yeah, obviously, less. I think they were scientists. Was it the Century Media at that time when they released the really? album? Obviously, Roadrunner had the yeah. three albums. But I still love Spine Shank. Yeah, I think they were a great band to come out of that time. Um, obviously true. good songs I think I think yeah. you know if you add it all up there's a lot of good songs yeah I mean but not enough probably for the whole thing to sustain itself and I think it just looked too ridiculous and it got dated really fast mm. so I'm jumping ahead I'm sure you want to talk about it why did it die I just want to quickly mention in terms of like you know on the, on the whole resurgence thing uh, I'm a big record collector vinyl yeah. um, and there has been a ton of new metal albums that have been pressed over the last few years that you never would have thought um, including Spine Shank, uh, their first two albums have been pressed. Um, Il Nino, the Latin metal is from, they were signed to Roadrunner, their first first two albums have been re repressed. There's, a, so someone at somewhere, there is a, there's a few bootlegs involved in there some, as well, but some of these uh, vinyl pressing companies, they're seeing the value in, even if it's just a limited run of maybe a thousand, two thousand, there you go. To be seeing the these back. are expensive items, you know. So you do a short yeah. run, you make a load of money because people yeah. will spend fifty quid on a box set, but they won't spend a fiver on a CD. So that's mm. the logic now. So. Yeah, but yeah, Cold Chain, we've got a box set coming out quite soon. You know, these things are lovely artifacts, aren't they? Mm. Oh yeah, definitely. And for a collector, yeah, I mean, yeah, we all, I'm sure we all use streaming at some point, but I've always felt you can't beat the the physical product. Right. Yeah, yeah, completely. Yeah. Looping back to what sort of started off the the waves conversation, big three. Do we still do we still think that's a a thing? Do we think big three is still a good way to help navigate? Okay, Matt. I think I think three definitely. Yeah, the corn limp biscuit and Slipknot. Um, and then there's always been I've seen questions on new metal forums and whatnot. Perhaps trying to add a fourth one in, like they did with the the thrash four. Um, but yeah, you, there's there's just there's a ton of bands you could pick for that fourth spot. But to to, to avoid any sort of you know arguments and that, yeah, the the three that have been mentioned are, are shoe ins for sure. Did Slipknot Slipknot moved away from that sound, didn't yeah. they? Right, yeah. they just became yeah. a regular metal band, so that's how they did it. Mm. Limp Bizkit are solely touring for the nostalgia value of the old stuff. No one gives a fuck about anything since about what ninety nine, two thousand maybe two thousand one. Yeah, um, and Corn actually, oh that lot, I've got to give them props really because they just plowed that same follow i know they've done some dubstep stuff along the way and been a bit different but they just basically keep going don't they and the yeah. quality remains high i have to say definitely um yeah but yeah maybe there's only room for those those three bands you know at, at a yeah. top level yeah i mean I, if i if i was had a gun to my head and they right you've got to pick a fourth then i probably would go deftones but i know that i think from the very early days deftones didn't really want to be part of that whole scene anyway um, I believe they was there was a 
there was supposed to be a co-headline tour with Corn Setter, I think it was, or, and they refused to do it because they just didn't want to be part of what Corn was sort of doing and everything. But um, like I say, Deftones, they've kind of become their own band. They're, they're just amazing still now. And um, so they quickly, especially after uh, White Pony, they released their self-titled fourth album. They sort of, you could tell they was trying to steer clear of that that movement um, as far as they could. I interviewed um, uh, Chi Cheng once. Oh, really? I had a long talk with him. Yeah, I was so sorry that he died. He was mm. a, a sweetheart. You would really like that guy. No yeah. doubt. Yeah. Mm. yeah, it was sad because they're, they're sitting on a whole album or 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 at least mm. half an album's worth of material that he was on that they, they're not sure if they ever will release, which is a shame. Mm. Mm. Quite bad. And the word really hard to keep his medical bills paid. That was like a that was like an agenda item for the next few tour cycles, wasn't it? Just it's America. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, Joel, you mentioned something before we started in earnest. You said um Michelle had a, a, a massive role mm. in this in this thing. I mm. imagine you mean UK centric or is is was there a, yeah, I felt like there was a story there and I felt like there was a, a thing there. I don't know if you I mean if there is. so for those who don't know, Michelle Kerr and her colleague Kirsten Springs. They were the PR people for Roadrunner Records in the UK um, in the 90s and a bit beyond, quite a long way beyond. Um, and OK, you might think, right, well, PR people, big deal, you know, but actually a lot of the new metal bands had a massive audience in the UK. And I ascribe that not solely to Michelle and Kirsten, but they were tireless at promoting those bands. Right. I remember. Clearly, Iowa landing on my desk, right, and opening it up because they posted out CDs, right? And um, going, wow, this looks great. Can't wait to play it. And uh, the magazine record collector, we were going to do an interview with one of Slipknot, right? And um, I think because I'd done my Slipknot book, that, that it was difficult to get a, a, a an interview, I think. I can't really remember. I think management had a bit of a problem. Certainly wasn't anything to do with the band or Michelle or anything like that. But I think management were being a bit dickish about it. But she managed to get Joey on the phone. And like that was hard to do. So Michelle really worked really hard to make that happen and a lot of pr people are just not like that right they're just not that bothered not as professional not as hard working but those two michelle and kirsten who are really nice they're good friends of mine um went above and beyond to push those bands in a way that i think paid off not just for those bands but for the for the new metal sound it had a big mm. big presence in the uk and because it had a big presence in the uk that filtered into europe so those bands would quite often do signings here wouldn't they or they'd launch their tours here or whatever um and that so that's why i think those two pr people are important to answer your question over and above the role of most regular prs i think that there's a bigger conversation about the role of uk in outlier artists and genres and i think those two have a mm -hmm. massive role in that roadrunner has a role in that i think um yeah yeah it's just it's just it's just fascinating just like i can't remember going i don't know if you, you share the same sentiment matt but like, i can't remember going to a gig when i was younger and not having the road crew as in the the roadrunner road crew the street team um flyering yeah you'd find fucking cds like under the windshield of your car all like the promo stuff and it's just like you couldn't i mean like, i get it because like the uk is a smaller island so there's a geographical advantage to doing that as opposed to the united yeah. states and europe but yeah there's something there there's something something in the infrastructure of how they did it which had a massive knock-on effect as to what hmm. yeah definitely so let's let's there's an elephant in the room we haven't mentioned yet and that's ross Robin, uh, robinson why, why is he an elephant because like all these bands there's the, there's like corn's debut 
obviously Slipknot. There's something that I was I was expecting when I said, oh, what were the milestones for the genre? I was expecting one of you to say, because I don't know much about Ross. Oh, yeah, when he was three, Ross fell over and uh, he bumped his head. And since then, he just loved a particular aesthetic. And then that fed into everything. I was half expecting that because he has had a massive impact on the genre as well. This is I remember listening to a podcast with him not too long ago. And he had a particular affinity with only working with new bands and like that gestation period in like those first sort of 18 24 months is the thing he'd like to get involved in does that yeah. match up with any of your understandings and, and joel have you got any story war stories from back in the day with him well i did a massive interview with him you know about his whole career once this years ago this is probably about 2004 or something and um i thought he was a real he was a really cool guy and what was that? i can't remember what I, so long ago now right so I was doing something. I did Max Cavalera's autobiography as well, right? Who wasn't a Sepultura, as you guys know. He went on to be in Soulfly, who had a new metal moment, although he doesn't like to think of it that way. But, you know, um, and Ross, uh, what was the controversy? Someone in Corn had said that Sepultura had stolen the sound. That was it. Or, or was it? I just can't remember who said what. It was a bit of a he said, she said situation. Right. Someone, whether in corn or out of corn, had complained that Sepultura had stolen corn sound for their Roots Army 96, right? Which actually holds up a little bit. There's something to that. Well, Max always says he's not listening yeah, to it. It's that. not cut and dried. Yeah. No, Max Max doesn't say it. It's more, you know, none of Sepultura ever said this. This was someone either in corn or around corn. I can't remember who it was. And I said this to Ross. I said, do you know? people are saying that Sepultura ripped off your sound and he was pissed off really? and uh, said, who said that? Who said that? I think it was like now. I can't remember. I couldn't remember then he said it, let alone now. I was like, Oh, I don't know. I read it somewhere. And um, it turned to a massive conversation and it was fine. And we ended up having a good laugh, but it made me think, and it's useful for this conversation. Well, what was Ross's role? I mean, mm. first he encouraged, you know those bands to come out with those incredibly confessional lyrics that he'd done with corn on daddy and the other uh, the other songs that jonathan davis really really came came out of himself on same to an extent with slipknot and he had that sound didn't he as well that big down tuned fat sound which a lot of people ascribe to fear factory funnily enough that's a whole other band which i like mm -hmm. but that's a whole other thing was that in your mouth <laughs> was it an industrial metal band where the hell were they because they they started out was a full-on death metal band right yeah. and um in fact, again, to get, I'm not trying to promote my own work here, but Des keeps saying about the impact of Fear Factory on that LA sound, right? And uh, until he said that, I hadn't really thought of it, but they've been going for years, haven't they, before, yeah. before um, the new metal lot came along. Anyway, so I haven't really answered your question, but Ross had this giant role, didn't he, because he was the go-to guy. I remember mm -hmm. very clearly Slayer considering him to produce, I think, what became God Hates Us All, which came wow. out on 9-11, didn't it? Yeah, and, uh, yeah, right in the middle of this, and that's a whole other conversation. What were the thrash bands doing while while new metal was going on? And the answer is not very well, right? And uh, but Ross was definitely in the mix for all this stuff. And then, unfortunately, I think his prominence fell as the new metal wave itself receded because he was known for this particular sound, wasn't he? Mm -hmm. Um, I haven't actually kept up with his career since then. I knew he's still working and he's done really well for himself. He's a good bloke, Ross. But he definitely was tied in, wasn't he, with that sound quite profoundly to the point where Corn actually. Do you remember if you pulled out the CD of the first record, you've got 
a page for each of them and then another page for Ross as if he's a member of the band. Mm. Which kind of shows you how much they regarded him as integral to their sound, right? So that that's my thoughts on Ross Robinson, you know. Go on then, Matt. You give us the, the skit because you interviewed him for the book, didn't you? Yeah, uh, somehow. Yeah, um, I remember at the time. It's great. It's real, real cool to get that. Yeah, I was at the time there. Um, so I was trying to sort of approach musicians that were active online because at the time I, was, I didn't have, you know, I didn't have any contacts within industry and whether they would have let me. You know, the, the bigger bands are kind of off limits um and yeah i think i'd messaged in just one day um and then about three months later i think I'm, i still remember i got home from work there was some food on the stove cooking and then my phone pinged and i just happened to and it was him um just got done in the studio give me an hour and we'll chat um nice. I, I was i had no preparation whatsoever so i think i turned the stove off let the food just you know go to waste um and then we spoke and then we spoke for a couple of hours that night. And the, the thing that I drew, I mean, obviously, um, obviously a, a lot of time has passed since 2000s and nine, the late 90s when he was working with Corn and Slipknot. And obviously he he developed a bit of a, uh, a thing for sort of really taking the musicians to the darkest depths of their soul to get out, obviously, the best performances. Like Joel said with Jonathan Davis, he was he would, uh, he would make him cry in the studio and try and relive all the, the agony and and whatnot but yeah maybe uh because time had passed he he, he was very sensitive i sort of felt when i spoke to him he was yeah. very very reflective um he knew um i mean he i mean just think about oh, yeah, the albums he he produced like the first two corns he did three dollar bill the first two slipknots and he he actually sort of opened up about how uh devastated he was not to get the gig for follow the leader because he just presumed that he had done the first two corn albums. He presumed that that was a relationship that was potentially going to, you know, remain solid for forever. Um, and then he actually talks about uh, 2010. He produced their their corn three. Remember who you are album and and how he just expected everything was going to be the same. But of course, there was um, band members had gone and left, and the they had kids. They were they were more grown up, and you know things changed. But yeah, for in terms of the the new metal, for a little period there, I presume, like I say, I was sort of two thousand. But anybody that was really keen on the new metal, and um, they probably wouldn't have been surprised to see that Ross Robinson had a production credit on a lot of these albums that was coming out. And yeah, he did seem to the sound he he you know got from the bands in the studio and on on record. You could you kind of can instantly tell it was a Ross Robinson uh, piece of work. Um, one of the newest albums that I can think of that he produced was... See, that's a downfall, isn't it? When something is that recognisable. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, but you froze for a sec, so yeah. I stopped talking. Yeah. Um, yeah. It can be, yeah, because there's yeah, a... If you're, if you're that identifiable, it's really hard, isn't it, to, to move on? Yeah, there's a producer, I can't think of his name at the minute, but he he does a lot of records, or he does, I think he's done every one for like Five Finger Death Punch. Um, um, oh, yeah, yeah in this moment no. they all seem to sound the same you can kind they of do. you can instantly tell that he doesn't seem to whether i know the guy yeah i can't remember his name yeah i can't think of his name but every album sounds the same but yeah i guess with ross um like i said the the last album that i'm aware that he did was a touche amore album they're a melodic hardcore band and even that you can kind of you can kind of tell one you wouldn't know perhaps instantly without if you knew ross had done it then you can kind of feel that he's got his vibe yeah. but yeah, didn't he, he do something with the with the cure 
Um, Akira 2004. Oh, he did that one, did he? See, that's cool. I could, I, I actually never heard it, but I could totally think, see that working. Yeah, I'm familiar with the album, but I, I do, I wasn't mm. aware he'd done that one. Yeah, I think he did. Yeah. Um, if he didn't do both Glassjaw albums, I think he did. Did he do Worship and Tribute as well? I think he put his name on that one. Can't remember. Uh, yeah, yeah, Worship and Tribute. Um, when was the other Glassjaw one? The, the, uh, the that was before that, so probably '98, something like that. Can't remember if he did that I one as well. It was a road. I wondered, um, I always wondered if he might sort of transcend metal and end up being a Rick Rubin, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who had similar kind of roots in one identifiable area and then just went on to be the super guy, didn't he? And did Johnny Cash, you know, and like the biggest artist on the planet, fucking mm. Paul McCartney. So I always wondered whether maybe Ross had that idea in mind, that trajectory. I have noticed, pure, right? You know. Yeah, I've noticed, I, I think he seems, he, ha or he has done a few more sort of alternative rock, maybe even sort of like electronic rock kind of bands oh, right, yeah. ones and um, so he has definitely sort of uh branched out a bit um his wikipedia article is somewhat limited as i think this guy's going to give us a bit more um in line us a bit more he did another sepulture album in 2013 um mm -hmm. he did suicide wow. silence in 2017 yes and that is a dis yeah you can tell that's ross as well that is really, really? Like a dirty sound a really sort of yeah that that, that was instantly um, yeah, I've, I've only in my book I've only sort of written the sort of the new new metal related albums that he worked yeah, on. Yeah, yeah, he did uh, Dead I... Cross. Yeah, last year I think. Oh, the Dead last Cross, thing, right? Yeah, the last thing I heard of him again, it's a different interview. Was um, he was working with Sid Wilson on incubating some artist. I think it was um, like literally just some some new thing, and I think they've like created a label to push it. So similar to like the I am I am stuff, which was his label in the nineties, which which is what brought on. I think Glassjaw started there, and then there was some sort of partnership with Roger and I. I'm yet to explore, to be honest. Um, but yeah, no, a fascinating dude. Yeah, definitely. so I know in the in Des's book he talks about how Cold Chamber got on Roadrunner because Dino from Fear Factory was doing some A and R, right? So Dino spotted Cold Chamber playing in Hollywood. Des gave him their demo. Dino gave the demo to Monty Connor, and that's how the deal with Roadrunner arrived. So, why did I say that just now? I don't know. That was relevant to what you just said. Oh, <laughs> because oh, Ross because... Robinson. Oh, sorry, because of Ross Robinson. Sorry. So, um, oh, what was it? He was either going to do it and didn't, or something happened. He was he was involved in the early conversations anyway, right? So he mm. was right in there, right at the start, Ross. Yeah, um, I've read, yeah, just touching on um, a lot of people I speak to as well, they credit Dino with helping, the, especially like the Los Angeles sector of new metal. Yeah, yeah, he was doing yeah. a lot of actually, yeah, in, in the book, I spoke to Meeks from Cold Chamber and he, no, he was talking level, yeah. about the, yeah, Dino did a lot for, for, for the mm. LA portion of, of, the, of the bands over there. That album, um, Digimortal. That mm. was pure new metal, and I will oh, not yes. be told otherwise, right? Definitely, yeah. That chunky, noise-gatey sound, you know, down-tuned to fuck, you know. There wasn't a DJ, but it might as well have been. You know, mm. there's like 10 Sid Wilsons, aren't there, on mm. operating weird samples in the background. And they... And they listened to that for a while. Yeah, and also, we've... I mean, I, I wrote a small, like, essay in the book about the, the collaborations with hip-hop. Obviously, new metal and hip-hop was a big thing. Mm. Um, I can't... Who was on... There was... Was it the Cypress Hill guy? Was it Public Enemy guy on Digimortal? He did one track. One of those, um, probably, I, yeah. I can't think of the top of my head, but obviously... Oh, well, the whole special guest thing, right? I mean, that is a whole podcast on its own. <laughs> yeah. You know, that is wicked. That first Soulfly with Fred Durst on it. 
Mm. Max didn't even know who he was. And uh, oh, there you go. You know, yeah. because what Limp Bizkit were, were coming up in 97, weren't they? Mm. And um, then the whole hip-hop thing just endlessly fascinates me. People always talk about that first Corn album being so hip-hoppy, and it is a bit. There's that one little, um, at the end of, the, is it the end of Blind? Or one of them where they do that little homage to a Cypress Hill bass part? I can't remember which one it is. Anyway, you probably don't want to get into that because we'll be here all day. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. What do you reckon to the bass sounds then, Joel? The really oh, clunky, man. really... Sl- really loose because i oh i'm like oh, I, I struggle with it right. a bit so if anyone doesn't know who's listening to this or watching this i was the editor of bass player magazine for years right so this is why i have a perspective on it so fieldy's bass playing is innovative it genuinely is an innovative innovative new way of playing but fuck me it sounds awful <laughs> and um i could never get into it at all and uh he's a good guy i've met him many many times but the <laughs> and then What's the name? Rainer from Cold mm. Chamber used that exact same tone. And one reason why Cold Chamber are always so negatively compared to Corn. And uh, it's that whole ding, 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 sounds like a typewriter being chucked down some yeah. stairs. It's, it's not for me. I, I, I get it. I do get it. They were tr- Ross was trying to find a way for the bass tones to cut through those massive down tuned guitars, right? I get yeah. it. It's hard. Um, but uh, so I, I, I admire it, but I don't like it, if you know what I mean. It's like with um, these days you'll see people doing like guitar covers on like an Instagram reel or something like that. And sometimes it's just like you can hear the pick hitting the strings and it really just takes you completely out of it. I get that from those those bass tones. It just feels well, you a little You can take bit... those frequencies out, but they left them in because they needed something to be heard from the bass player. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Anyway. Interesting. Um, moving forward then, what do you regard as like the fall of the genre then? Was it in a similar capacity as what were the milestones early doors? Is there anything that went, was it Fieldy leaving? Was it West Borland leaving? Was it? Question from Matt, I think, a recent uh, expert on the genre, more than me. Um, I, I, I still credit a lot of it to the illegal downloading um, in terms of sending the, obviously the the uh, the record labels lost a lot of money, probably lost it, probably lost it, lost faith in the bands they had signed there was so many albums that were written recorded done and shelved that was never released um, a lot of bands obviously lost their record deals um i i vaguely remember the first time like i said i mentioned earlier uh, kill switch engages uh, my last serenade video so from that i could tell there was kind of something different coming you had that new wave of american metal with lamb of god um i think uh five finger death punch were a little bit forbid um yeah um and then a lot of like the emo screamo stuff but i, I do as well remember wes borland left limp biscuit ahead of their results may vary album i got a funny story about that i'll tell you that in a minute yeah um chocolate starfish obviously sold millions and millions results may vary came out and it absolutely flopped um and from a from someone sort of in that time thinking about everything that was happening that just seemed to be where everything peaked and then just literally just nosedived off a cliff. I think Corn, they released Untouchables, so that was 2002. That leaked online about a month before it came out, mm. which, um, I mean, it still sold good numbers, but uh, I believe that it should have sold probably three or four million more at least um, had it not suffered from that. So I do, yeah, kind of credit illegal downloading and then obviously just a new scene coming in from elsewhere. I just think people got bored. People just just had seen Fred and his red cap too many times. 
Mm. And the tracksuits that caught it, people just got sick of it. You, it's natural to move on. Mm. And it had, had such intense media coverage, right? I remember you could not get away from Chocolate Starfish, right? There must have been, what, four or five singles off that record? Yeah. And um, I really liked that um, Mission Impossible one. Mm. Uh, what's it called? Take a Look Around? Look around. Yeah. yeah. That's still a tune, right? I still listen to that today. And, um, you know, all the, the other funny, the funny ones from Significant Other and, you know, the Nookies and all that. It's not really, it's not really deep music, is it? But like, it's fun. You know what I mean? I was at a gig the other night and these band, this metal band, 16 years old, three of them did a cover of Break Stuff. And it was like someone in my generation covering the Beatles, you know? And uh, I was thinking, you're 16. How do you know about, how how mm -hmm. do you love Limp Biscuit that much? It's because your mum and dad played it to you, isn't it? And, um, but that stuff has, has lived on. So my point is that that band was so big and Slipknot got so big, cleverly. Mm. It, it, I just think people were done. And, and you just said, Matt, that Kill Switch came out. That stuff was great, right? Really, really convincing and new. It, yeah. it wasn't new, was it? You got to a certain point and everything sounded like either Pantera or Black Arm Metallica with a bit of extra yeah. stuff. <clears throat> but yeah, as you say, it was it was new aesthetic, new stuff. Lamb of God were pretty convincing when they came out, weren't they? Yeah. Um, and the rest of them. There was a big old thing. The media shift for shifted focus. Your point about downloads and the death of the industry, see, that would affect everyone, not just metal bands, which mm -hmm. is why it's making me think. I mean, you know, you didn't see hip hop bands going away, did you? And people yeah. still bought Disney pop True. in billions of units. You know what I mean? So I, I don't know. I think it was an aesthetic thing. I think people got to be embarrassed. You know, they grew up. They were 25 when they'd been eight, uh, 18 when they first got into it. And they're thinking, I shouldn't really still have Serge Tankian on my wall. You know what I mean? I, I, I just think, and it was so vivid. It was so vivid. Look at the 70s, right? When you had all the glitter and the Bowie and the and the, and the Mark Bolan and the Sweet and everyone had silver suits, right? Because that's an extreme look. When it falls from fashion, it falls fucking quickly from fashion, right? And I think you can apply that analogy to new metal as well. Anything that's that glittering and bright and vivid, it's not built to endure. It's just mm -hmm. not, it's too extreme, right? And people just thought, you know what? This isn't serious anymore. The, the big bands are still good. There's a lot of shit bands as well that are just copying this that record, record companies have put together. Mm -hmm. Add all that up. And you are right about the death of you know the industry because of the downloads. Nah, it you burned think... brightly and briefly. That's I don't know as well, um, we obviously we're touching on new metal. Uh, a lot of the lyrics were a lot deeper and emotional. Um, obviously, after new metal, then came like the post-hardcore and the screamo and the emo, which the next generation of kids who were perhaps in school they was getting on, perhaps getting into rock yeah. music through Limp Bizkit and Corn, but they wanted their yeah. own their own bands as well. They wanted something especially for them, and of course, going it, it was something that attracted that generation up. And then we got the My Chemical yeah. Romances and and all those. Right, it, it and then been... that is an absolutely sharp dividing line. That is where a lot of people just stop listening, right? They they got it. They listened to thrash metal in the 80s and new metal in the 90s, and then they were just done because they were like 35. You know what I mean, and, and so then it was then it was returned to a young person's form of music again, I think. Yeah. Um, which is why at that point you had this whole rise of classic metal, right? The term classic rock hadn't really existed mm. before about 2002, before the mag came out. And suddenly you had older people who had some money and could afford to spend 80 quid to go and see Iron Maiden or whatever and then but didn't want to hear anything else really 
you know they could dig Limp Bizkit fine and then beyond that they were done and I honestly think it's when the new wave of American heavy metal came in and the emo and the screamo and the metalcore that was when that happened I think there's a really sharp dividing line there because oh, there's also like a, the idea of a, I keep trying to link these to like perfect storms of things as well like remember I was talking about Ozfest and Woodstock um, and all that stuff at the same time Wes has left Slipknot were on a hiatus and doing side projects and Corn presumably maybe Jonathan wasn't quite as angsty or the angst was being replaced by all this stuff there's all sorts of reasons why you turn your replaced by affluence <laughs> yeah so give me um give me like the hidden treasures then like what what was completely missed at the time um maybe they're still going Matt any sort of bands which might not have heard of might not have seen on Kerrang or Scuzz which might be worth a pop these days or all these revisiting I've got something about Scuzz which I'll, I'll tell you off the record afterwards Joe, no cause... I used to like Scuzz I filmed a series for them it was never broadcast <laughs> oh, oh okay okay let's, let's I've got so so much to tell you okay right, go, go on then Matt give us some give us some um some gems I can I can note well, down we yeah just sort of thinking back to that time I mean when we did only have perhaps Kerrang the TV show and the magazine we missed out on a hell of a lot of bands who did fairly well in America so it was only when it came to me doing my books that I was actually able to go back and perhaps find um you know a load of bands that I missed out on the first time that, that were really good but I still, in terms of albums from back in the day, I still love them. But the band themselves have always been an absolute train wreck. But uh, a band called Floor, they did an album called Through the Eyes. I think that was just phenomenal. The first gig I think I ever went to was Taproot um, on their Welcome Tour. And their, uh, the band supporting them was Pulse Ultra. Um, wow, they were, that's a great name. Yeah, they were a little bit different. They had, they had distinctive time signatures. They were a little bit more progressive in places. They only did one album called uh, Headspace. They were signed to Atlantic Records. Um, and yeah, obviously put on the spot here. I can't sort of... It's okay. There's, there's obviously, there's so many. Um, a band called Level, they only did one album. I think the guy went on and had uh, vocaled for Edema for a little while. Um, they was a bit Edema. more rap. A rap rock band um but yeah cheap plug if anybody wants to buy the book online it's only 4.99 on amazon at the minute so there's plenty of bands in there <laughs> there we go and it's both are still on and around uh joel you got any any hidden treasures that are coming to mind what's, no, funny, right? <clears throat> what's funny is that i was just looking at matt then and it's hard isn't it when you're put on the spot mm -hmm. so i thought i'll quickly open up the um I've quickly opened up the Word document right, of my book because I haven't read it in years. Mm. And I've just realised that I put like clutch in there and stuff, right? It's so inappropriate for a new metal band. And I've just come mm. across Disturbed. How about okay. that massive name that we have mm. not mentioned once so far? I never liked them. Did you like them, like, Matt? First two albums, nothing after that. They played on Saturday, download. And I was like, hey, not, yeah, not they're, they're still big. Popular, but I've, they, you, you know what you're going to get with them. I sort of relate them to yeah. Five Finger Death Punch. They, every album is pretty much the same. <clears throat> it's hard to find anyone who says I love Disturbed. You know what mm. I mean? I was wondering, um, is this like a UK or USA thing? Are they massive in the USA? And then they've just got this weird cult following in the UK, which is which is why we're like, we can't, we don't know anyone who loves them. I think they still do arena tours when they come here, which really? I kind of, so in terms of the size of the venues, yeah, I think they still, I mean, they are, I don't know if I've right, ever Let me shout out some names to you blokes, all right? These all are right. going to crack you up. Insane Clown Posse. 
like apparently they're massive in, in the southern states of America. Right. Yeah. I wouldn't. I wouldn't pay ten p to see them. Do you know if they're any good? <laughs> literally, a hip-hop, literally a hip hop duo. Yeah. yeah. Why are they in my book? I suppose they're kind of a little. Oh, I don't know. Kid there Rock. Was a moment in time. I think. I think I included Kid Rock in this, and I know I remember oh, now yeah. thinking why I did. There's there's an argument to he's not a new metal band act, is he now? But at the time he had a moment, didn't he? And I wonder whether that was sort of pushed. He yeah. was pushed that way. All right, he's on the playlist. He's on the Spotify playlist. Kitty. For what about Kitty? That's yeah. not a bad band. Yeah, I had um, Fallon interviewed in the book from because I wanted to get a female perspective. And right. yeah, I yeah, yeah, it's a good thing to do. There was a. There, do you remember there was an English band called Sugar Coma that were kind of like they were the English version of Kitty. That was. I do. I remember. Yeah, I've, I've put Life of Agony in here. I wonder. I don't know, early emo sort of thing, really, isn't it? It was yeah. yeah the reason you put it in was because the the emo the emotive element of the 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 songs. Thank if you. I remember rightly, from you for reminding me. Yeah. Right, I've put I've put Marilyn Manson in there as well, which makes zero sense. It made sense at the time, timing, because yeah. I was thinking of new in EW different transformative forces in metal, and he yeah. seemed to fit the bill. There's a load of bands that shouldn't be in there. I think I might have even put Queens of the Stone Age in there. It's so stupid. Yes. Right, hang on. There's loads of these. Mr. Bungle. Hmm. No. Well, they were a sick new world. Yeah. He, he, see, when we think about new metal now, it's it's it it seems so big at the time, like nothing was going to be the same again. I remember very clearly that was one reason why I did this book. It was like, look, we got to chronicle this. It might not last for years. <laughs> of course, it didn't. But um. There was a lot of bands that all did something vaguely new metal-y in their sound, you know what I mean? All right, My Ruin, Nail Bomb, no. Nickelback, I put Nickelback in there, am I insane or what? Nine Inch Nails. Oh, Nine Inch Nails. Industrial, really. Yeah, same as Fear Factory. Yeah. yeah. Orgy, that was a new metal band. Mm-hmm, yeah. <laughs> Papa Roach, I fucking hated Papa Roach. They were big though, weren't they? Massive. Still do really well. I'm surprised. POD, how... Remember them? Yeah, yeah. Hayable on death, Christian Band. <laughs> Great, you know, it's quite a metal name. I've put Pitch Shifter in there, which doesn't really make any. Oh, Power Man Five Thousand. So right. many bands that I never want to hear of again. I had to listen to so much stuff. <laughs> uh, we're getting to the end. Puddle of Mud. No, I, th- I think I think this is uh, speaking to your waves though, Matt. There was some sort of post grunge. Bitch, which clearly yeah. you were t- you were tapping into their job. Nickelback, yeah, now you'd go absolutely fucking not. But at the time, they were definitely like there was a post grunge. Yeah, oh, that was catching them. But it makes it's no sense. I put Ramstein there as well. It's literally no no sense whatsoever. <laughs> Seven Dust. There you go. I got one right. Uh they're an OG. Yeah, yeah. I'd, I'd sort of yeah. They were. They've they're more of a cult band. I think they've got a very healthy fan base. Often considered very um consistent throughout their their career. Mm. Stained uh, Static X. Static X. Yeah. Wow. No, they had quite a moment. Hmm. Yeah. Actually, what do you think of the um, current version of the story? I, I've seen the live show and I thought they were really good. I mean, I don't. I still don't think they confirmed Edsel Dopes the, the singer, but it's pretty. Sounds pretty. He does a good job. Um, I think they've got a second version of the album, the Project Regeneration, out this year, and. Um, I think that is the the final recordings from Wayne that they've they'll be using there. 
that's it. Millions of small bands that never went anywhere. It's quite a good laugh writing it, I remember. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, right then, chaps, I'm going to bring it to a close there. Are there any closing comments or uh, observations you might have made and then thought, oh, I'll tell that for later or whatever? Oh, I want Matt to tell me if it's if it's still going and if it has been a resurgence. I don't really know. I mean, there's, there's still a lot of active bands. Um, as you said, their corn are probably the one that are putting out the most consistent and strong material still, um, especially since yeah. Brian Head Welsh came back, what, five, six, six years ago now. I think these last few albums they've done with him in, on, in, involved are, are fantastic. Limp Biscuit, they're, uh, I mean, I don't, I'm not aware of the, the venue, but they're playing a big gig in London um, in August in... Oh, yeah. Yeah, um, might go and see them actually. I've read it's like a 60,000 capacity. I don't know whether they're going to sell it out. I don't know. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's still a lot of the bands um, putting out songs, if not full albums. Um, I, I think you'd be a bit um, naive to think it's ever going to be the same as it was, but it was a, it's, it's, it's not like there for, the, for the, the nostalgia. And, and then there's, there's some loads of new bands coming out. Are they forming with a DJ and massive baggy strides? Are there? That's not happening. In America, there's I mean, in the in my book I've done a little back section called the New Blood. There is a lot of bands that, right. like I say, using that and similar aesthetics. There is a few of the Adidas wearers and all that involved as well. Um, ele electronics do seem to be um, a common incorporation into the sound these days as well. Um, but oh, there is a few you can make it on a bit of free software. That's why. Yeah, yeah, true. Um, but there is a few bands there you can instantly oh, can see that they they're influenced by Corn, perhaps, or Limp Bizkit. Um, but yeah, it was a for for me especially. Obviously, it sort of helped me grow, and the music was sort of important to me. So I'm, I'm still I still do have fond memories. Um, and yes, there was a few bands that didn't stand the test of time, but just yeah. a few. Yeah. Fair enough. That's good.